Good afternoon, Marcel. How are you? It's good to see everybody. Well, we're continuing on in the story of the resurrection of Lazarus by the power of Jesus. So to remind us where the story last left off last week, so we can continue on with the story this week, uh, in Bethany, there's a man named Lazarus, who was the brother of Mary and Martha and Jesus' friend. And this Lazarus, we're told, becomes really ill. Jesus receives the news as he's out in the wilderness with his disciples away from Jerusalem because there's a lot of anger with Jesus from the religious leaders and they want to kill him, so he goes away. And by the time the news gets to Jesus, um, what he does with it seems kind of strange. He doesn't do anything with the news. He doesn't get up and go immediately. Instead, he stays there. And in that time that Jesus stayed where he was in the wilderness, Lazarus dies. That's kind of interesting because if you remember what Lazarus' name means in Hebrew, Eleazar, it means God has helped. And so at the very beginning of the story, it doesn't seem that his name means anything, that God is not helping him whatsoever. Jesus takes the disciples after a few days to Bethany where Lazarus died. And as Jesus is approaching Bethany, Martha runs to him, grieving. And they have this dialogue, which we read last week. Martha said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Yet, I know that even now, whatever you ask from God, God will give it to you. So she confesses her grief, she brings it before him, and yet she displays this faith that even though I know if you were here, he wouldn't have died, for some reason, your delay has a purpose. And I trust it that the relationship that you and the Father have is good and that all you do is good. She expresses her emotions and her experience paired with what she knows and what she believes. Jesus tells her, your brother's going to rise again. And Martha says, well, I know, we all know that there's going to be a resurrection at the end of time, and so I'll see him again. And Jesus says, I'm not talking about the future. I'm talking about the present. I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe me, he asks. Martha confesses, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who has come into the world. And it's on the heels of this confession from Martha that the story picks back up for us today. Verse 28, when Martha had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. When's the last time you can remember um, being deeply grieved? Something in your life happened that caused a lot of grief, maybe the loss of somebody. And with that loss came this just unbearable weight of sorrow that laid on your soul. And the loss that you experienced felt overwhelming. You didn't understand how life could go on. And even the slightest memory of that loss, whether it comes from a song or a smell or a sound or a word, would just send you off running for the safety of privacy where you could cry. When was that? 
It might be now. You might be experiencing that now. It might have been recently. It might have been long ago, but we've been there. Do you remember being with people then in that time of, of grief? The people around you reaching out to you, calling you, texting you to check up on you. There were people that would hug you, embrace you. They'd rub your arms. They'd rub your back. They would cry with you. There would be a line of cars following your car, following the hearse on the way to the cemetery. We've all been in that grieving space. And if you haven't been in that grieving space yet, you will at some point in your life. It's the place where we were grieving in the presence of others who were watching us grieve. And in those moments, you fight back tears when people ask, how are you holding up? And what do you do? You lie. And you say, I'm fine. And you say, I'm making it, right? No, you're not. None of us make it or are fine <laughs> at a cemetery. And for some reason, you just feel like you can't be yourself. And you go back and forth between wanting to be alone and in the company of other people. Here in this story, Mary is in that space, that space where we have been. She's grieving the loss of her brother while others are watching her. And we know that there's others watching her because the scriptures tell us that she rose quickly and went to see Jesus. And the others, supposing that she was going to the tomb to grieve, followed her. But that's not where she went, is it? They thought she was going to the cemetery. She did not go to the tomb. She did not go to the cemetery. Instead, she went to Jesus, and not merely to greet him, not to, you know, angrily yell at him for not doing anything about this, not merely just to be near him. Verse 32, now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet. What is that? But a position of worship, prostration before the Lord. She fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Notice how Mary didn't go to the tomb. She went to Jesus. And Mary didn't go to Jesus faithlessly. She repeated her sister's confession of faith to the T. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. That's exactly what Martha said. And with people looking on, and Mary filled with grief, they watched as she fell reverently before the Lord and laid her sorrow at his feet. Not blaming him, not being angry with him, not questioning him, but simply bringing her grief to him, laying it before him and confessing faith in him. Do you know that people watch us when we grieve? As believers, as a church, as Christians, people watch us when we, they're always watching us. If you claim to be a Christ follower, you're being watched. And that never ends. Even in the most intimate and private of moments, we're being watched by people, by our neighbors. We're watched when we grieve. We claim to be a people who worship the death-defeating author of life. And in Christ, with Paul, we taunt death. Where is your victory? Where is your sting? And we weep, yet with hope, knowing that the Lord Jesus has the loss that we've experienced in his hands. And so for the skeptic, 
And those who resist the invitation of the gospel through Christ, they think to themselves, okay, how is this person who confesses belief in Jesus, how is their faith going to hold up when God allows such a terrible thing to happen to them? How, how strong is it when the weight of a loss and grief begins to push on their soul? Where are they going to run when they experience grief? Is it going to be to where others have run? Is it going to be to apathy or anxiety, to depression or alcohol? Or are they going to run elsewhere? Are they going to run deeper into their faith? Are they going to run toward God? The question that they're asking is really this. Is their faith more powerful than their sorrow? And we learn from Mary here that we can actually bring honor and glory to God when we grieve loss and when we suffer. We can bring honor and glory to God even in hospital rooms and at the side of burial plots in cemeteries. You see, we are witnesses of the Lord Jesus all the time, even during our lowest moments, even as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. So when people watch you grieve, where do you go? To whom do you run in your grief? Know that you are a witness even then. Do you run to Jesus or do you run elsewhere? Because people are watching and we have no clue what God will do with our faithful witness of him in those moments. My wife and I recently attended a funeral the mother of my wife's friend had passed away. And um, my wife's friend and my wife are similar ages, and so it was a, a pretty sh surprising that the mother passed away. She died relatively young. And so we went to the funeral home, and when we arrived, we greeted her and her husband, and we made small talk about travel, because they're from out of town. And uh, our kids were in similar stages of life. We both have children under the age of one. And then after a short conversation about travel and children comes the dreaded silence. Who's ever been in a funeral where you talk and then for some reason you run out of things to say a lot faster than you would in school or, or at work or on the water cooler? It becomes tense, awkward, uncomfortable. My brain raced for something to say, and it was exhausted, finding nothing, right? Have you been there? Have you experienced the same when there's this undirected silence? Don't you feel like you failed? That's how I felt. That silence is like an opponent on a football field, and they're beating us 48 to zero, right? You just feel like, oh my goodness, the silence is winning. And it's a bad thing that there's silence. Why do we feel that way? Why do we feel like silence ought not have a place in grief? I think it's because we wrongly believe that silence is a failure to communicate empathy, when in reality, silence may actually communicate empathy better than any words that we could ever come up with. Verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her were also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. 
Jesus wept. Shortest verse in the Bible. Two small words, yet they communicate so much. Think about the way that Jesus has been described in the Gospel of John thus far. Jesus wept. The word who was with God in the beginning, the word who is God, the one through whom all things were made, the true light, full of grace and truth, the Lamb of God, the Son of God, of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, the bread of life, the light of the world, the good shepherd, the resurrection and the life, the almighty God, maker and sustainer of the universe, transcendent in all of his being, infinite in holiness, power, majesty and glory, the creator, God made human, the king of kings, Lord of lords, prince of peace, everlasting God incarnate, wept. Do you know that you worship a God who weeps? You worship a God who weeps. A God who is not distant but near. A God who is not unfeeling but empathizes. A God who is not apathetic but cares. A God who is not indifferent but feels. This God in his son wept with his friends, Mary and Martha, as they all wept together for the loss of Lazarus. It's what Jesus doesn't do in this moment that makes it so powerful to me. Jesus does not speak. He doesn't console. He doesn't reason. He doesn't explain. He doesn't teach. He doesn't say anything at all in his words. He doesn't say, I'm sorry for your loss. But do you imagine Jesus was sorry for their loss? He doesn't say, cheer up. Don't you know that Lazarus is present with the Lord? Although, don't you know he believed that? He doesn't even say, hey, stop crying. He said, five minutes, I'm going to bring him back. Although he knew he was going to do that. He simply wept with those who were weeping. And I think that Paul may have had this very episode in mind when he wrote, Famously, in Romans 12, to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. There's no qualification. It's not believers rejoicing with other believers. It's just rejoice with who's rejoicing and weep with those who weep, your neighbors. Why not say something, though? It's a question that bothered me, I think. Of all people, isn't Jesus the wisest and most qualified person to speak in that moment? The answer is yes, but he chooses not to. Why? The wisdom we receive from Ecclesiastes tells us that there's a time for everything. And in specific, there's a time to keep silence and there's a time to speak. And what this communicates to us and is displayed and modeled in the Lord Jesus is that godly empathy isn't only knowing what to say, it's also knowing when to say nothing at all. That when we want to comfort those who are mourning and to weep with those who weep, godly empathy is not only knowing what to say, but it's also knowing when to say nothing at all. Because sometimes saying something will send the wrong message. That it tells those who are grieving that they ought to repair their sorrow. And in that moment, they can't. So not wanting to feel bad in front of you, what happens? That person buries their grief. They mask it. They hide it. They try to get over it. You ask him, how are you doing? You know he's with the Lord, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm doing fine. I know that. Thank you. But you know what's happening in their heart, right? They're suppressing how they actually feel. And we're unintentionally preventing people from grieving. We become a stumbling block 
to the process of grief that God wants them to go through. We speak in a time to keep silent, and we should be weeping with those who weep. There's no way I can know who you've lost, when you've lost them, or if you're about to lose them. But I guarantee that something like this happened to you. Somebody spoke when they should have remained silent, and I'm sorry that that person frustrated your grief unintentionally. Maybe you thought, if I'm a believer and the one that I lost is a believer, I will look unfaithful for not putting a happy face on, or it will appear that I have a weak faith, or it will seem like I don't trust God. Those are lies, they're just lies. God himself weeps. He wept for the loss of his friend Lazarus, and he wept during your loss too. You worship a God who weeps. Not because he was powerless to do anything about it, but because he is powerful enough to feel. And that power was felt by those who were with Mary if we notice, continuing on in the story, watching how Jesus began to cry in verse 36, the Jews said, see how he loved him. But not all of them thought that. Some of them said, well, I don't know. Could he not have opened the eyes of the blind man, have also kept this man from dying? Why didn't he just do that? It's funny uh, that when you think about it, the point that some of these Jews, not all, but some of the Jews are making is the same point that the sisters are making with one important difference. That when a Martha came to Jesus, she said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And then she tags on, yet yeah, I know whatever you ask the Father, he'll give you, the God he'll give you. Uh, and then Martha repeats verbatim the exact same thing when she meets Jesus. If you'd been here, I know my brother wouldn't have died. And now some of these Jews are saying kind of the same thing. Like had he, he has something, he, he, we know he could do something about it, but he didn't. But the difference is that Mary and Martha tell Jesus what they know about him, yet with faith that his action and even his inaction has a good purpose. And some of these Jews know what Jesus can do, but do not trust Jesus. And so they assume that Jesus has done something wrong, that he's done something uh, that's um, looked down on, that's maybe even immoral. With great power comes great responsibility, right? So if he could have healed this guy, why didn't he do it? You know, the more I think about it, I don't like this Jesus guy. Right? It's interesting how knowledge and faith interact, isn't it? That Mary, Martha, and the Jews knew Jesus could heal, but it was only the sisters that added their faith and their belief in a good God to that knowledge, and the Jews doubted. So it's not enough simply to know Jesus. It's not even enough to simply believe that Jesus can do the things that we, that he says he can in the gospel. You have to believe that his actions are good and his inactions are good and that there's a reason and a purpose for them. Scholars know Christ was a moral teacher. Historians know Jesus is a revolutionary. Your neighbor probably knows Jesus as an important figure, taught really good things. Yeah, he might have done a miracle or two. We all know Jesus in these senses too, but what distinguishes disciples from the world is that knowledge by itself is insufficient, that we ought to have faith and belief, and faith and belief in a good God, not just one who has power. We also believe in him, that we believe that all he does is good and faithful and has a purpose, even if it doesn't seem like it in the moment. 
Verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. So the story continues on, and we're told that Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled when he sees uh, the weeping of the sister and, and the Jews. Translators struggle with this phrase, deeply troubled and moved. Great, or, sorry, uh, deeply moved and greatly troubled. It's a tough one to translate, actually. So when you're reading a bunch of different English translations, you'll see that it's kind of related, but there's a nuance to each of them. So for example, the King James translates that Jesus groaned in his spirit and was troubled. New American Standard said that Jesus was deeply moved in the spirit and was troubled. The New Revised Standard Version says that Jesus was greatly disturbed in spirit and deeply moved. And a newer translation, Christian Standard, says that Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. So there, you see they're all pretty similar, but they have some nuances to them, and all of them carry with them that we're, we're meant to understand Jesus as in distress. Uh, he's got concern for what he sees, maybe even shock. Never would you think that Jesus is irritated, uh, that he is facing ire, that he's angry, right? But the interesting thing is that word that they translate, deeply moved and troubled, actually is the same word we see Jesus using in Matthew 9 where he sternly warns his disciples not to tell anybody. And elsewhere in Mark where Jesus scolds. So actually we are meant to understand the emotion that Jesus is feeling as distress that is empowered by anger. Interesting, right? Martin Luther translated it this way, that Jesus, that, that, um, Jesus kindled with anger in his soul kindled with anger in his soul. I love that translation. And more recently, the late Eugene Peterson in his uh, translation, the message said, a deep anger welled up within Jesus. Those are closer to what is trying to be communicated. And I understand why translators shy away from that because if you're reading this at surface level, to whom does Jesus's anger seem directed? He sees the Jews weeping, he sees the sister weeping, and you could mistakenly think that he's angry at them, but he can't be because he weeps with them. So who is Jesus angry at? Who has vexed him and irritated him? Paul tells us in Romans 5.12 that just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men. Jesus is angry at sin, and he is furious at the product of sin, which is death. Sin killed his friend. Sin tore apart a family. Sin stole away a brother. And sin is fracturing a community. And here, Jesus, the creator incarnate, has experienced firsthand what sin has done to his creation, what it's done to his image bearers, what it's done to his friend. And he's mad. And he's had enough. And he's tired of what John Calvin called the violent tyranny of death. Jesus is furious at Satan and sin and death and sorrow. And so that anger, that righteous and good and proper anger is moving him to do something about it. Satan has angered the one who has control over creation who turned water into wine, multiplied loaves and fishes, who walked on water, and Satan has angered the one who undoes what sin has broken. 
that repairs what sin has hurt. That Jesus heals the official son, he heals the paralytic, and he heals the man born blind. Jesus is furious with the serpent. And the enemy's days are numbered because something amazing is going to happen at the end of John's gospel. And we're about to get a foretaste, a hint, a peek at what that might be. That work that Jesus is about to do that will eternally frustrate his enemy and destroy his enemy forever. So here comes the foretaste in verse 38, 39. Then Jesus deeply moved again, this fire burning in his soul. Deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone laid against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an anger, or there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. So Jesus, for whatever he's about to do, needs the stone rolled away. But Martha, understandably concerned, reluctantly reminds Jesus he's dead. Very dead. <laughs> four days dead. Not four hours dead. If you were mistaken or miscommunication, four days dead. His body is rotting. If you've ever smelled uh, the stench of a, of, a, of a corpse, you know you only, that's only one time you want to smell that, right? What's interesting, though, is earlier she expressed faith in the resurrection, didn't she? She said to, well, Jesus said to her then, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And he asked her specifically, do you believe this? And she says what? Yes. Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who's coming into the world. But here, Martha's faith is being put to the test, isn't it? Do you really believe in the resurrection? Do you really believe that Jesus is the one who resurrects? Do you believe that Jesus wants to resurrect? Everything Martha has ever experienced about death is telling her otherwise. That death is permanent. That dead bodies decompose. And when they begin to decompose, there's no hope. And once there's no hope, that dying has separated you from that person forever. And even though she believes in Jesus' words, her experience has overwhelmed her faith and it is suppressing it. And it's causing her to doubt. So what does Jesus do? He gently reminds her to lean into what Jesus has said